sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in and have a seat. Because we are in the midst of the Halloween season, we're doing something a bit different with this episode. I thought more frequent releases might be appreciated this time of year, so this one will be the first of a two-parter, a bit shorter perhaps than usual, and with the follow-up episode coming closer to Halloween itself. Mrs. Carswell will not be with us because she's busy preparing the bees for their fortune-telling performance in our next show, and uh, no readings from the books of our library are required this episode, as we'll be dealing with more recent history, that of the late-night horror hosts. In this episode, we'll be working our way up through the late 1950s and in our next installment up to 1970 or so. Last Halloween season, in our Spook Show episode, I described those live presentations as a forerunner to all of this, which it certainly was. But another part of our story begins in the era of radio, back in 1931, with the Mutual Broadcasting System show, The Witch's Tale. of the eerie, weird, blood-chilling tales told by old Nancy, the witch of Salem, and Satan, the wise black cat. They are waiting, waiting for you now. The show ran from 1931 to 1938, and as you'd guess, focused on horror stories, largely those drawn from the pulps, and uh, this was a genre that hadn't yet been explored on radio. The Witch was played by Adelaide Fitzallen, an actress respected for Shakespearean roles in the theater, and the Satan role was voiced by series producer Alonzo Dean Cole. Satan, give word to douse all lights and I'll spin the yard. That's it. Make it nice and dark. Sitting in the glooms, the way to hear our pretty tales. Now, Ms. Fitzallen was already 74 when the series launched and died midway through the show's run, but not before picking an actress to replace her. Her choice was a 13-year-old girl who apparently did a very serviceable chrome voice. While the old witch may be a bit removed from what we consider a horror host, the concept of a spooky mistress or master of ceremonies introducing spooky stories was picked up by other radio shows, notably The Inner Sanctum, hosted by a character known simply as Raymond, whose uh, black humor and uh, pun-filled routine helped set a model to be followed by later horror hosts. His uh, sardonic character was particularly on display in interactions with the woman representing the show's sponsor, Lipton Tea. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. 
This is your host to welcome you through the squeaking door for another half hour of lovely chills and shudders. Oh, before we begin tonight, I'd like to give you a word of advice. If you should ever walk through a cemetery at midnight and come face to face with a transparent personality floating above a tombstone, don't be frightened. After all, you can see right through him. Good gracious, why do we have to talk about cemeteries? Because, Mary, our story tonight is about a vampire. Where else would you expect to find one if not in the cemetery? In the Vampire State Building? Well, suppose you go wait in that closet. Raymond was also the first to make use of a trademark sign-off that would later become stock and trade for television's horror hosts. (laughs) Until next Tuesday, then. Good night. Pleasant dreams? Hmm? <laughs> Inner Sanctum launched in 1941 and ran to 1952, only a couple of years short of the launch of television's first hosted horror movies. Even during its run, it spawned plenty of imitators. By 1943, there was... The Mysterious Traveler! A show in which a peculiar stranger insists on relating dark tales to less-than-willing fellow passengers on a train. This is the mysterious traveler, inviting you to join him on another journey into the realm of the strange and terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, that it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. That voice, sounding a bit like Vincent Price, belonged to Maurice Tarplin, who a year later was doing double horror radio duty playing another sinister host. The strange Dr. Weird. One who also had a trademark sign-off. Oh, you have to go. Too bad. Perhaps you'll drop in on me again soon. I'm always home. Just look for the house. On the other side of the cemetery, the house of Dr. Weird. Then, by 1949, another horror host appeared, one who lived not near the cemetery, but in it, in a crypt specifically. Tales from the Crypt. That's, of course, from the early 90s television series inspired by the comic book of the same name. The Crypt Keeper's sarcastic, pun-ridden commentary took the banter of Inner Sanctum's Raymond and pushed it a bit further. He was the product of EC Comics, a publisher with a reputation for pushing limits and a particular target of the notorious 1955 Congressional Subcommittee hearings on comic books and juvenile delinquency. In its heyday, EC produced three horror comics, Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, and The Haunt of Fear, all of which told stories introduced by ghoulish hosts, the Crypt Keeper, of course, the Vault Keeper, and the Old Witch, who hosted Haunt of Fear. Her creators acknowledged the radio show, The Witch's Tale, as inspiration for the character. While each of these served as a sort of mascot for their particular comic, they also shared hosting duties in their sister publications, making the three comics virtually indistinguishable. 
The Crypt Keeper first appeared as a character in a story in EC's Crime Patrol comic, which was eventually retitled Crypt of Terror, and finally Tales from the Crypt, by which time he'd transformed from a player in the story into the sort of host we've been discussing. His appearance in the comic, by the way, was not the living corpse presented in the TV show, but more of a wild-eyed old man with stringy white hair and a not infrequently frothing mouth. The Vault Keeper, of whom we see very little thanks to his hooded robe, was initially imagined as a sort of grim and menacing Grand Inquisitor, but underwent a similar transformation into a uh, campy master of gallows humor. In 1954, the Vault Keeper was provided a sexy but silent sidekick, Drusilla. With her long black hair, pale skin, and tight black dress, Drusilla bore a rather striking resemblance to another horror host that would appear that year on television. On the 30th of April, on Valpurgisnacht, by coincidence, I suppose, Television's first horror host appeared on KABC-TV in Los Angeles. Though it was only broadcast locally and only ran from 1954 to 1955, the show's impact was national and enduring. I'm talking, of course, about The Vampire Show, with Vampira played by Myla Normie. Each show opened with Vampyra approaching the viewer through a corridor swirling with fog. Then, as she drew close to the lens, that unsettling scream. Her introduction to the films might include a bit of campy dialogue or gags involving her pet spider, Rolo, or a bit of stage business, such as a lesson in concocting a vampire cocktail and selecting a proper garnish. However, if you want to use some garnish, you can drop in an eyeball. If you happen to have an extra one around the house. The show was live, so only a kinescope recording of a single episode exists. That is a low-quality 16mm film shot from a studio monitor in that episode. She jokes about her set, which is meant to represent an attic. You know, I've often been asked why I don't light my attic with electricity. Isn't that ridiculous? Everybody knows electricity is for chairs. Let me darken the room, and we shall commence. Coming out of commercial breaks, Vampire would engage in a similar shtick, often commenting sarcastically on the poor quality of the night's film, and she would end each broadcast wishing all unpleasant dreams. Her attitude and style of commentary would provide a template for most every horror host to come. But something that none of them could reproduce was her image, her look. Her long black hair and black dress hugging a severely wasp-waisted figure were borrowed from the Charles Adams character Morticia, or the one who was later given that name for the TV show. But Normie made her character more sexual and aggressive. She added a plunging neckline, boldly painted and imperiously arched eyebrows, and long artificial nails. Normie had first dressed as Morticia for an annual costume ball hosted by the choreographer Lester Horton, where she caught the eye of television producer Hunt Stromberg Jr., who'd been looking for talent for a horror movie series he wanted to create. 
Worried about lawsuits brought by Charles Adams, they suggested a slightly different look for the show. In later interviews, Normie would credit various sources of inspiration for the final look, a silent film star Theda Barra, the evil queen from Disney's Snow White, and a character called the Dragon Lady from Terry and the Pirates, a now mostly forgotten comic strip of the 1930s that spawned movie serials and comic books and TV series, all now also forgotten. Vampire's dramatic facial structure probably owes something to Normie's Finnish heritage, which would also have been the source of her natural hair color, which was surprisingly light brown or blonde. Normie's mother was born in Finland and her father, a Finnish immigrant living in Massachusetts. After moving to Oregon as a child, Normie made her way to Los Angeles in 1940, hoping to find work in the film industry. As that was hardly an easy task, she sustained herself performing as a chorus line dancer in burlesque shows and modeling for pinup photographers. In 1944, she performed in a disastrously short-lived spook show, Spook Scandals, a uh, role requiring her to lie in a coffin and prance around a cemetery, among other things. She also found occasional work as an extra. Her fortune changed drastically with the launch of The Vampire Show, which was an immediate success, drawing attention far beyond its local broadcast market in Southern California. Halloween of 1954 particularly brought a barrage of attention to the show with a story in Newsweek and a photo essay in Life magazine. That week she also appeared on the NBC game show Place the Face, during which host Bill Cullen reads from the Life article, as Vampira stalks up from behind him. Sort of stuff, you know. And it says that she has a pet spider named Rolo, and I can't be. And she hates, you know how people exaggerate. She um, she hates the sunlight, and uh, she's the ghostess with uh, mo. <laughs> that same week, she also appeared on CBS's Red Skelton show in a skit reimagining the popular Honeymooners sitcom with a Halloween skew. Guest Peter Laurie assumed Jackie Gleason's role, and Normie played his wife, Alice, renamed Malice for the occasion. Oh, what do you, what would you like to eat? Well, what do you got? Peasant under glass. You mean pheasant under glass? No, peasant. More meat. <laughs> Malice, I'm warning you. One of these days. Pow! Right in the kitchen! <laughs> Normie was still appearing on national television shows in 1955, including a starring guest spot on NBC's highly rated variety show, The George Goebel Show. We can have a nice little... Ah! <laughs> step on the cat's tail. I don't see any cat. Oh, we don't have a cat. Uh, just his tail. <laughs> and all of this was fueled by a series of costumed public appearances and stunts. She cruised Hollywood Boulevard in a 1932 Packard touring car shaded by a black parasol, campaigned for the imaginary office of Nightmare of Hollywood on a platform of dead issues, and was nominated for a Los Angeles Area Emmy Award for Most Outstanding Female Personality of 1954. That year, KABC even tried to duplicate the success of The Vampire Show with a knockoff, a series of romance movies hosted by what was called a sex kitten back then, actress Gloria Paul, whose 
Shtick included striptease behind a backlit screen and skimpy negligee, but uh, fewer outrage put an end to that show after only seven episodes. Fueling Normie's publicity machine was some sort of relationship with James Dean, one downplayed by Dean, but evidenced by set passes issued for Normie during the filming of Rebel Without a Cause. When Dean met his end in a car crash, tabloids referred to Normie as Dean's Black Madonna, suggested that she had caused the accident through witchcraft and or that she was in communication with his departed spirit. In the 1940s, Normie also supposedly had, with Orson Welles, a child that was given up for adoption, but I'm not sure how much evidence there is for that. Normie was prone a bit to uh, self-mythologizing. Despite all the ballyhoo, the Vampire Show was cancelled in 1955 after Normie refused to sell her rights to the character to KABC. A brief reboot on Arrival Station, Vampire Returns, failed to recapture the show's magic, and Normie was left scrambling for other work, which included a brief stint in a show with Liberace in Vegas, and an appearance in the 1959 film The Beat Generation, a a crime thriller that sent detectives scrambling through the coffee houses of the Beatnik underground, one of whom happens to be played by Jackie Coogan, Uncle Fester of the television Adams family. Though credited as Vampira, Normie sported a version of her own light hair in a shaggy androgynous cut, baggy sweater, and she read poetry while clutching a cigarette and a pet rat. We too will embrace force, but of our own cool kind. Now is our time through the beat way of life. Our force of kicks, unending kicks. The kicks that destroy without killing. I'll tell you one thing, any more of this poetry reading I'm getting out of here. Oh, it's all very arty and educational. Where are your sandals? Of course, the film from 1959, for which she's best known, is one in which she reprises the vampire role, or something that looks like it. Zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from outer space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive Vampira, and Thor Johnson as the Walking Dead. Edward's famously misguided thriller about zombies resurrected by orbiting Venusians was, of course, also the centerpiece in Tim Burton's romanticized biopic, Ed Wood. Normie doesn't speak in Plan 9, and in later interviews reported that this is by choice, after rejecting Wood's proposed dialogue as unperformably bad. But being out of the horror host scene business for four years at the time, something the Burton film gets wrong, she couldn't afford to turn down what Wood offered, even if it was only $200. Other roles were few and far between. By 1960, she accepted a small part as a sorceress in a children's movie. The Magic Sword. A film so bad as to receive the Mystery Science Theater treatment in 1994. Even worse, in 1962, she took a role in the comedy Sex Kittens Go to College, and not even as a sex kitten, but a cameo as an unglamorous lab assistant, though still billed as Vampira. And in this one, she shares the screen with a misbehaving chimpanzee and a robot named Thinko, 
who appeared alongside topless dancers in a special cut released to porn theaters of the day. The college goes wild. The battle of the sex kittens begins. Thinko blows a fuse. And everyone has a ball. Normie supplemented her meager acting income laying linoleum, making drapes, and refinishing furniture, as well as managing a short-life junk shop called Vampire's Attic. Our two episodes on Horror Host was planned to only cover a 40-year span from The Witch's Tale of 1931 to Hosts of 1971, so I'm afraid I won't be talking about the best-known horror host in our time, Elvira, whose uh, show launched in 1981, although I will mention that Cassandra Peterson's character was intended to be a resurrected vampire under that name, but defaulted to Elvira when Normie wouldn't sell the rights to the character and eventually ended up on the losing side of a court case intending to stop the show altogether. I won't take sides here, as there were regrettable moves on both ends, but there was some good to trickle down to Normie from Elvira's popularity. There was a new fascination with the original vampire, offering Normie more uh, cult status and financial rewards, so she did start licensing her image for a number of products. I'll wrap up our look at Vampire with a snippet of a record she recorded during this period. One of two 1986 singles she recorded with the LA punk band Satan's Cheerleaders called Genocide Utopia. Genocide is a utopia for the Vatican Antichrist and all of his helpers, wicked men in high places. Something that's remarkable about Vampyra, aside from the phenomenon of a local TV host sparking national interest, was the uniqueness of not only her persona, but the niche she had created. Despite the national buzz over the show, no one in any other local market dared to attempt to duplicate her format for several years, or at least not until 1957, when a new crop of horror hosts was spawned by the release through Screen Gems of a package of horror films for local syndication. It was called Shock Theater, to be followed by Son of Shock in 1958. All of these films were at least a decade old and considered to be of lesser value. The package included plenty of forgettable films, but also 1930s Universal productions like Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, and The Wolfman, which at the time were not regarded as classics. All that grew out of the second generation of audiences their television broadcasts created. This inexpensive supply of horror film fodder spawned the first wave of horror hosts beginning in 1957. As the phenomenon gained traction, another package was released, Creature Features, which added newer films, uh, British productions, science fiction, and Japanese giant monster movies. I should probably also make something else clear, especially for our overseas listeners who may not be familiar with the formula. These hosted horror movies usually did air late at night, ideally around midnight, making the broadcast more of an event for young viewers staying up alone in their houses. The midnight show was a tradition carried over from the live spook shows I talked about in last year's episode. Who dares to search? Who dares to see what walks in the night? If you dare, welcome to Nightmare. 
Nightmare Theater was broadcast weekly in the Dallas-Fort Worth area from 1957 to 1959, and intermittently for about a decade thereafter. Its host, named Gorgon, a uh, caped, vaguely vampiric character skulking about a castle, was only one of the roles actor Bill Camfield assumed on air at the station. He was also the voice of Hoover, the movie hound, a puppet co-hosting Million Dollar Matinee and, most enduringly, Icky Twerp, a kids' show host outfitted in a striped suit, horn-rimmed glasses, and a tiny cowboy hat. As the hosted shock theater packages were particularly aimed at teens, hosts would often ditch the gothic look for another character young people might consider him. Hello, I'm Marvin. In the late 1950s, this could mean a beatnik, as was the case with Marvin, the nearsighted madman, the bespectacled hepcat hosting Chicago's shock theater from 1957 to 1959. Everybody got their shoes on? Take these off now. We're going to be beatniks. We got to be beatniks. This show did so well that an entire half-hour segment was added at the end of the movie, the Shocktail Party, during which Marvin goofed around with a hunchback sidekick, Orville, and Shorty, a tall guy in a Frankenstein monster mask. A group of musicians in ghoul makeup sometimes joined in as the Deadbeats. How would you feel one summer day if you jumped out of bed and winked to blink and tried to think, then realized you were dead? Portland, Oregon was also home to a sort of beatnik host, a black-clad female by the name of Tarantula Ghoul, who presided over the series House of Horror from 1957 to 1959 again. Her home was said to be located adjacent to a cemetery where she was attended by her sidekick, Milton, her sometimes gardener, sometimes gravedigger. She also appeared with live animals on set, a boa constrictor named Baby, and Sir Galahad, a tarantula. No recordings of her show survive, but she lives on through a single she released with her band, The Gravediggers, on Halloween of 1958. One side was a song titled King Kong. And the flip side, Graveyard Rock, became something of a Halloween party perennial. Tired of living, want to die? Well, here's a real good reason why. It all begins about 12 o'clock When the graves all open and we start to rock Graveyard rock Graveyard rock In the graveyard Graveyard rock Everybody needs a graveyard rock We'll finish up this first half of our horror host two-parter looking at another personality who started out in 1957. He's probably had the longest career of all, still making in-character appearances as late as 2010. I'm talking about John Zacherly, who, in addition to hosting Philadelphia's Shock Theater, eventually gained a bit of national fame also recording Halloween novelty songs, like the single My Dinner with Drac, which made it to the American Bandstand Top 10 in 1958. A dinner was served for three at Dracula's house by the sea. 
The orders were fine, but I choked on my wine when I learned that the main course was me. The character Zachary created was Roland, spelled like Roland, but with a fancier pronunciation he insisted on. Roland is sometimes said to be an undertaker or at least wore a 19th century frock coat you could imagine an old undertaker wearing. And he wore it well on a suitably tall, thin frame, wore his hair slicked back and grease paint applied to make him look like a somewhat healthier version of Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera. He rarely introduced himself as Roland or began his show with any sort of formal introduction. You're hearing an opening now. Stick it in my stomach, my dear. Will you carry on here? Oh, good evening, good evening. I, uh, I think Mayday was just a little bit too much for the old uh, she had a Instead, the camera tended to open on him puttering on something in the crypt set, which sometimes doubled as a lab, often muttering irascibly like a ghoulish W.C. Fields. Roland's irritation here is directed at his ever-present, unspeaking, and never-shown sidekick, his dead or undead wife who resides in a coffin and is referred to at first simply as my dear and in later episodes as Isabel. Roland has a habit of driving a stake into her heart from time to time, which in some odd way is supposed to gratify her. There's also a thing hanging in a burlap bag on set by the name of Gasport. He may or may not be the couple's son. And there's a third off-camera character named Igor. None of these speak, making instead only inarticulate moans or whimpers provided by whatever crew member happened to be near a mic. Now, my dear, I'm going to remove your steak uh, so that you'll be able to have a little freedom tomorrow. A little bit, a little bit tight, my dear. There we are. Now, is there He'd any... been involved in Philadelphia's theater scene when he was hired to act in a Western produced locally by WCAU-TV, a sort of daily soap opera called Action in the Afternoon, in which he played several roles, including that of an undertaker. Wearing the same coat, he carried over into his role hosting Shock Theater. I should remind listeners that all these shows, not only Zachary's, but all of them, were done live, adding an entertaining, unpredictable quality. Roland's general irritability was particularly well suited to the not infrequent mishaps. Yeah, 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 yes, they say. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? What it's. It's all the more interesting because of what is supposed to happen in the next few minutes. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, no, just a minute here. All is not lost. There was also an intentional subversion of the format from time to time. Not only would Roland sometimes mock the quality of the films presented, something started with Vampira, but he also treated his sponsor's commercials with a bit of irreverence. Well, I always like to do my house cleaning the way Mama used to do it. I believe in the old fashion. Spring house cleaning, 1916. Grandma tied a rag on a broom and swept down the house. Roland would also surprise viewers by intruding his own commentary in over the film's audio. 
I want you to have Rainfield closely watched by day and night, especially by night. Especially by night. That's the best time for vampires, I tell you. <laughs> and as the series progressed, the crew developed a technique whereby Roland might even be keyed in over the film footage, so hiding behind a gravestone in a cemetery shot or throwing objects thrown out of frame back into the shot in a scene of a monster destroying a laboratory. And like all horror hosts, Roland had his own trademark sign-off. Good night, whatever you are! Like the Vampire Show, Zachary's Shock Theater quickly drew in fans. In its second year, the station decided to celebrate with an open house during which fans could visit the set where the show was filmed. A crowd of 800 had been planned for, but over 10,000 turned out, snarling traffic in the area for hours and causing property damage and broken windows and the like from the crush of visitors. When the Philadelphia station was acquired by CBS later that year, Zachary chose to strike out for New York City, where the show was recreated under the name Zachary at Large, and the host's name actually became Zachary rather than Roland. Over the next years, until 1964, Zachary continued his in-character hosting under different names and different stations in New York. In the 1960s, he also worked as a radio disc jockey, guested on the CBS game show What's My Line, and edited two collections of horror stories. He also campaigned for president. Uh, also, also, if elected, I propose to expand the Federal Reserve System to include all blood banks. Zachary for president, Zachary for president, he's Transylvania's favorite son. Hey! Vote for Zachary, vote for Zach, let's put a vampire in the White House, just for fun. Zachary for president, Zachary for president. In 1970, Zachary introduced the Grateful Dead at the Fillmore East in New York, and in 1975 appeared on the Mike Douglas talk show. Here is Zachary. By the 1980s, he was back to hosting horror movies in various show reboots and special appearances that continued all the way into the 2000s. A friend and fellow Philadelphian radio and television personality Dick Clark proved an invaluable connection to Zachary. Like many youngsters in the city, Clark's daughter was obsessed with the horror host and encouraged her dad to have Zachary record for the label Cameo Records, which he co-owned, resulting in the uh, Dinner with Drax single that appeared as a top ten hit on Clark's show, American Bandstand. Zachary would occasionally substitute host on that show. And he also received the nickname The Cool Ghoul from Clark. In the early 1960s, Zachary followed up his success with novelty singles with several album-length collections, including Spook Along with Zachary, Monster Mash, and Scary Tales featuring John Zacherly. The songs generally are parodies of pop songs of the day, with Zacherly sometimes singing or reciting verses in his character's voice, and at other times slipping into a Karloff imitation. But there are uh, some entertaining outliers, including a cool jazz retelling of Hansel and Gretel. Now Hansel and Gretel were two little ghoul kids who were like any other two school kids, except their mom had a mania to twist Transylvania. Yes, twist people's necks. Ain't that cool, kids? 
There's also a version of Mary Howitt's 1829 children's poem, The Spider and the Fly. There have been other musical adaptations, including a couple in the 1930s, but none quite like Zachary's. Mr. Spider. Yes, Miss Fly, my darling. This is a lovely tomb. I mean room. <laughs> yes. Would you like to sit upon my sofa? <laughs> oh, I thought it was a coffin. <laughs> Later. <laughs> Would you like to have a glass of mummy juice? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> oh, I like it too. <laughs> it's carbonated. Yes, my darling. The, the bubbles tickle my nose. As I intended to keep this first half of our two-parter short, we'll close out for now with a bit of the same song I used in closing our Spook Show episode last Halloween. I guess that makes it a tradition. Gonna eat some lizard lunch Gonna drink some living punch Gonna dance until we're dead Hit me on the head Hang my heart and split my spleen Happy Halloween!